0: san antonio texas 1983. we've had a big addition to our home in texas cable television and of course with that comes mtv it's all my brother and i ever watched there's a song that i've become very fond of that they're showing a lot on mtv by a band called crosby stills and nash it's called southern cross Well, after one of the times they played it, one of the VJs explains what the Southern Cross is. And he says, it's only visible from Australia and if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. I've since learned that's not entirely true, but that's what I believed in 1983. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what are the chances of a guy from San Antonio, Texas ending up in Australia? I guess I'll never see the Southern Cross, the constellation. Well, I don't remember how it all happened. I remember I was asked to attend a formation with Alpha Company while we were in garrison, which is unusual. It was fall of 1987. I think it was First Sergeant Young who came out and made the announcement that Alpha Company, Cold Steel, would be deploying to Australia still get chills, Um, total military discipline breaks down. The place goes crazy. I remember the guys in 2nd Platoon chasing me down and just dogpiling me. I remember Wiz holding me down and the guys just friendly punching me in the ribs and it was just awesome. To make it even better, one of my best friends in the army would be accompanying us. The guys in Alpha Company got together and selected one cook from the mess hall to join us, my dear friend Eric Rothschild, who's going to join us on this podcast. So, welcome to Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. In the late 1980s, a group of young men who grew up without computers, cell phones, and social media will help end the Cold War. This is not based on a true story. This is a true story. Ah, yes. Good day, Light Fighters. I've been looking forward to this show. Again, uh, Doyle Kruger, Sergeant Doyle Kruger is also going to join us on this episode. If you weren't an Alpha Company, I'm hoping you'll listen to this podcast. We were representing everybody in the division, everybody in the battalion. And it just, you just can't imagine it. I'm, I'm convinced there were some guys in Apple Company that didn't really even know where Australia was. As I mentioned in the last episode, I always loved maps and globes and knew Australia. I knew it was a long, long way away. And so we'll talk about that as well. All right. Now, it was an exchange program, as I recall. I remember as soon as we got the announcement, I went straight to the library to learn everything I could about Australia. In fact, I don't know if anybody still has a copy of this. Back in those days, Fort Ord had a newspaper, and I was given the job of doing the story. I actually wrote the story for the Fort Ord newspaper when we got back from Australia. So I went down there, really wanted to pay attention to things and take care of things uh, in my mind so I could write about it when I got back. And of course, of course, a lot of things that happened in Australia couldn't print in the family-friendly newspaper. But we're going to talk about that as well. Okay. We find out, I don't remember exactly when we found out that we were going to Australia, but I want to talk about how we how we got there. Uh, we're going to talk to Eric Rothschild and Doyle Kruger, some of their memories, confirming some of my memories, but I got to start with what things were like in November Of 1987, and real quick, I know I said Operation Just Cause was in December of 1990 last week. That was a mistake. I know it was December of '89 because I was working at the hospital serving trays when I heard about it on CNN, and I was crushed because I could see the familiar mop tops of the 7th ID running around in Panama, and I thought that should have been me. I didn't know the following year I would finally get to live out my lifelong dream of fighting in a war in Operation Desert Storm in the Battle of Kofti, but that's a whole different podcast, back to getting ready to go to Australia. Well, in November of 1987, it's important to remember that the year before, one of the most popular movies in all of America that year was Crocodile Dundee. It's a, you know just typical Hollywood movie. Uh, New York person goes to Australia, falls in love with the outback. You know the tall, handsome Australian Paul Hogan. As a side note, I've still never seen that movie. But for whatever reason, 1987 Australia was the country that everybody was talking about. It was the country that everybody wanted to go to. But because it was so far away, it's not exactly. a a trip you can do, oh, let's just go to Australia this weekend. It takes quite a bit of planning, and it took quite a bit of planning to move 120 guys in their gear all the way down under. Uh, For whatever reason, I remember flying on a military flight. It was one of those Air Force C-141s with the comfort pallets. I remember sitting next to Eric. I remember it was freezing cold. When I would fly to um, Desert Storm uh, uh, a few years later, I I always remember that Australia flight and and dressed very, very warm. Anytime I I knew I'd be flying in a military flight flight at altitude. I sat next to Eric. We played this old Cuddle Eco handheld baseball game. I mean, it it was like you you hit a little red cursor and you you get a single or whatever. You could hit a home run. And we were keeping stats and things like that. It was a very, very long trip. I remember getting, I believe we flew out of um, San Francisco. I might be mixing memories, but there was one period of time where we flew out of San Francisco, even though I think it was on a military Flight. It might have been Travis Air Force Base, but there was one time we went up to San Francisco, and it was one of the one of the lieutenants. It might have been the executive officer who told us to take those ridiculous red things off of our barrels. And I think it was the Australia trip. And so just imagine today walking through an American airport, just decked out with all of your gear. Um, we had, we had, you know we didn't carry our duffel bags on the flight. We carried our rucksacks. If I don't if I remember correctly. We might, even, I might, we might have even stowed those now that I think about it. We're going to be reunited with them when we get to Australia. There's a whole portion of this podcast coming up about that little fun exercise the Australians had planned for us. But I just remember walking to the airport with you know, our weapons and everything. And like I said, the Nobody stopped you. Hey, thank you for your service. Again, we're doing all of this in relative anonymity, but I didn't care. I was going to Australia, and I I just, like I said, I couldn't believe it. I remember Eric coming and telling me that he was going to be the one to go to Australia, and when I talked to him earlier this month, I asked him about that.
1: So the Australia trip is unique in the fact that the Alpha Company um, who went on the trip – Got to choose one person from the hall, uh to represent, uh, you know, you know, the methal, I guess, out there in Australia, and work with the Australian cooks. And I don't know how many people were in the Hall, but there had to be eight to ten somewhere in that range. At least, at least, at least. Uh, yeah, yeah, of us cooks or more. And so they chose me to go on the trip, which was awesome. Uh, all the other cooks hated me, but, you know, hey.
0: I would love to find out why y'all picked Eric. He told me in the conversation. He had actually become friends with 1st Sergeant Young. That might have helped. They played racquetball together and things like that. Eric was on a two-year enlistment. He was in a special program that time called 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. If you had two years of college, you could be in the Army for two years, and then they would pay for your final two years of college, which is why he was there for this two-year enlistment. And and he confided to me he had absolutely no idea. Like, I don't I didn't either, that we would be taking a trip to Australia, a deployment to Australia. Because it was occurring in November, it was going to be very special to him for another reason.
1: So the other side that really made it unique, though, Jason... ...was that I was going to be in Australia on what was my 21st birthday.
0: And we'll hear about that a little bit later in the podcast. But, yeah, I think the drinking age in Australia 1987 was like seven years old. The Australians (laughs) love to drink, as you're about to find out. But, you know, not everybody was initially excited about going down under. Uh, One of the absolute best soldiers I ever knew in the Army. In fact, this is not meant to offend anybody but they said, hey, you got to pick one guy to be in a fight, you know, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you can only pick one guy. It would be Sergeant Doyle Kruger from Alpha Company. We had already been to, like, leaders' course. We had been to Panama 400-legged Leggett million times. He had joined the Army in February of 1985. He was an airborne ranger, but he wasn't all that excited about going to Australia. I
2: initially thought that's going to be a horribly long plane ride on military <laughs> transport. And the last thing I want to do is go on this trip. And I remember Captain Townsend said, you're not getting out of this. You're going. you will thank me later.
0: And it was a long flight. You know, I've, flown to Rome as a civilian. I flew to Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm. The the trip to Australia was the longest flight I've ever taken. My memory was San Francisco to Hawaii to Pago Pago, and then into Her Majesty's North Queensland, Australia. Now, I will say, when I found out we were going to Australia to a place called Townsville, I had never heard of Townsville. Uh, I, I actually never heard of North Queensland. I could name some of the big cities, Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney. And if you look at it on a map, Australia is a big country. And I used to tell people that going to Australia and going to Townsville was sort of like coming to America from Australia and maybe visiting a city that not everybody has, has heard of, but it was still Australia. So I wasn't upset about the location. I just knew I was going someplace that I never, ever imagined I would go. And both Eric and Doyle and some Doyle Kruger, Sergeant Kruger, some of the people I've talked to about this had the same reaction, just not even on the radar of a place as you thought you would go during the 1980s. You could see going to Korea. You could see going to the Philippines. You could see going to Germany or Europe or the Middle East, but Australia, I don't think any of us saw that one coming. So after a very, very long flight, we land in Australia, November 1987. I remember getting off the plane and not knowing if it was the end of the day or the start of of the day. Now, I got to say, the Australians really put on the dog when we got there. They had a band waiting for us. There were people there cheering us on. In case you don't know, in World War II, The Americans, specifically the Marines for the most part, uh, won a big battle that prevented Australia from being invaded by Japan. And for that reason, Australians love Americans. And to put it in historical perspective, in the late 1980s, Australia was sort of 20 years behind America in terms of like social development and, you know, social and racial and ethnic. Awareness. And so the Americans were seen as these, you know, sort of forward-thinking, a little more open-minded people. And and they all knew we were coming. When we talk about the catamaran cruise, I can assure you that the the people waiting for us in Australia, especially the Australian ladies, they couldn't wait to meet the Americans. I remember um, Lieutenant Lombatis coming over and saying, Hey Doc, there's two young ladies here that want to meet somebody from Texas. And I, I think they were probably a little disappointed. They were looking for the big tall Texan. And here comes this thin Hispanic-looking guy. But um, I remember that very well at the airport. Well, when we finished with customs, we did some exchange. The exchange worked out very well for us. I think I had $130, and I got back like $150. The dollar was worth more than the Australian dollar. I saved some of that Australian money. I've since lost it. I've since lost so many of the pictures and things from Australia. I don't know what happened to my slouch hat. If anybody has an extra one, please let me know, or I can probably find one on Amazon. So we finally leave the airport, and we're heading over to whatever the Australians call the, their fort or their post or their installation there. I do not remember what the name was. But anyway, we get there and we load all of our duffel bags, those big green duffel bags onto a truck, but we're told to ruck up with our rucksacks and our weapons. Now, the Australians had a little surprise for us. And by the way, the sun was not going down. The sun was just coming up. The One of the longest days I ever spent in the army was just getting started. Now, over the years, we tend to exaggerate things. I do not know how long this march was. But instead of marching us into the front gates of the installation, the Australians chose to march us around the entire perimeter. Now, it wasn't 20 miles, but it wasn't five or six either. It was a long, long march. We had just gotten off the plane I know personally I had all kinds of stuff in my rucksack that I would not normally take with me on a field deployment. I'm sure the Australians thought, hey, we're going to show these Americans uh, how tough we are. Well, we were pretty tough ourselves. Something the Australians could not have known is that we'd already been to Panama. So, you know, marching around in North Queensland, Australia in the tropical heat was no big deal to us. But it, it is the scene of one of my absolute favorite stories in the Army. Eric, the cook, like me, is in Headquarters Company. We're attached to Alpha Company when we deploy to the field. Keeping up with what we referred to as the grunts, the real infantry soldiers, was important to everyone. And now he finds himself on a forced march that he's never, ever been on before.
1: It was kind of funny. So being a cook in an infantry unit, you didn't always seem to get the maybe the respect. I don't know if that's the right word. But uh, of the infantry guys, right, the grunts.
0: Well, this was a tough walk. And I can remember even I was carrying stuff for some of the guys. I distinctly remember carrying Robinson's M60 weapon for a period of time. I carried um, some base plates, some bipods and stuff during that march. And like I said, I, I really think we were at the peak of our fitness and our unit cohesion, especially after Panama. But back to what Eric said the need to get the respect of the grunts, the 11 Bravos. I assure you that day in Australia, Eric earned that respect. He made the march with all of us. And I will never forget, like I said, it's one of my favorite stories. He comes to me when we finally finished the march and we're at our, our barracks. It wasn't even the barracks. We slept in a carport underneath the barracks. But for infantry soldiers, anything with a, a roof and a cot, that's that's like luxury accommodations uh, for light fighters. Eric came to me and said, Jason, promise me you'll tell everybody I made the march. Because it was important to all of us. He didn't fall out. Uh, I don't know how many of the other cooks would have made it. Eric went on to tell me he had always been an athlete. You should see him now. He could, he could make that march today uh, probably uh, just as well as he did back in 1987. He's big time into fitness and training and things like that. But he really was adamant that I tell people that he finished that march. And so I'm telling people, if you're a friend or family member of Eric Rothschild, the cook Hung in there with the real infantry soldiers, the grunts, and he wanted me to know that day, and he wanted everyone else to know. So I'm telling you, he did not quit. He did not fall out. And that's what I mean about the esprit de corps, the spirit of the corps in our unit. You did not want to fall out. You didn't want to be a Lima Delta I thought as much as I love 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry, I worked with all the different infantry companies at different periods of time on shorter deployments at the range and different areas. I really did think our company was the best company. Um, I felt our second platoon was the best platoon. And candidly, I felt I was the best medic in the battalion, not because of my medical skills, but because I'd learned to do every job of the headquarters element of the platoon in terms of forward observation land navigation, could shoot and clean all the weapons except for the M60. And so I really felt like we were hitting our stride. And I know the Australians thought they were going to wear us out on that first day, but they didn't. Um, we made that march, and then we marked in, marched into the camp and got settled in. And so finally, it's evening time. And what I learned in Australia was no matter how remote the Australian military installations was, all of them had what was called a boozer barn. And so we're we're celebrating our arrival in Australia with some of the Australian guys. I don't remember who it was. One of the soldiers was buying these things called yard glasses. It's a It's a glass of beer that's a yard high. And I think the whole trick is to drink it in one, you know, one shot. And so I've done it. And of course, I weigh 140 pounds in those days. I am already past the legal limit. So I go to sit down at the edge of this pavilion, and I'm looking out into this little field between the buildings, and I think, man, I must be uh, way far, way more far gone, far gone than I, I thought. I'm looking at this trailer that's sitting out there, and to me, it appears to be sweating. There's water kind of running down the side. and it's a big trailer because when I walk over to it, I have to put my foot on the wheel and pull myself up to look into it. It is a, just imagine a U-Haul truck that you see on the road with the half of the top cut off, at least that big, packed with ice and packed in that ice, I don't know how many cases it was, of 4X and Foster's lager beer. I mean, I, for a second, I couldn't even speak. So I jump, off the, I jump off the wheel and I go running over to the guys. Hey, stop buying beer. Stop buying beer. They brought us some. And I'm telling you, uh, for many years, I thought, that maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly. But I checked with Sergeant Doyle Krueger and he confirms that that actually happened.
2: That's a fact. I was there. I saw the same trailer and um, had my share.
0: We all did. And it kicks off a night of Nights. I mean, we uh, I had actually tried to rent a car when I got to Australia. I actually did rent a car. It was a blue Hyundai Excel, but of course, with the wheel being on the wrong side and driving on the wrong side, I pulled out of the rental car, drove right into traffic. It's like a Fast and Furious movie. Cars are going by the wrong way, and I'm you know fishtailing around. I brought that rental car back and said, nope, no way. I'm going to kill somebody uh, like myself if I try to drive here in Australia. So we're taking cabs. We are going to Townsville. The Australians are taking us down to where the clubs are. I don't remember what night it was. It was a week night but i mean young people can find stuff to do in a city any time of the year and like i said we there there had to be enough for every guy to have a couple of cases of this beer it was just tons and tons of alcohol and one of my ever present memories is our dear sergeant Fonseca, who has since passed away, I will never forget him on you know the light up dance floor, and he's just he's just had too many, and it's like, yo ho, blow the man down, and he just goes careening off the dance floor into the tables, and you can see the candles flying everywhere and the people trying to help him back up. Like I said, there's just not been enough time to talk about everybody, but Sergeant Fonseca was just one of those guys, another one of those soldiers in Alpha Company that was just so dependable and so great. Again, I'd gone to Light Leader's course with him. He had been really great with me, showed me, uh, showed me a knot in uh, at Light Leader's course that I still use to this very day. I just did it with my hands, the end of line bowline. I used that knot several times a year for different things, uh, just a soldier's soldier, he would go on to serve in Operation Just Cause. And as an as aside, I may do a short podcast series on Operation Just Cause. So I may be reaching out to some of y'all about that as well. But that is my memory, just watching Sergeant Fonseca go careening off the dance floor. Well, that was the first night we were there. It was set up in such a way in Australia that we had sort of a week of liberty, a week just to get acclimated, get used to Townsville, go get in as much trouble as we can. And all I know is about that night. I left the club with one girl and woke up in, the, in, in bed with an Australian nurse who was not the person I left the club with. It was just that kind of night. Well, another one of the things we did in that first week—I um, don't remember his name—he was the a company XO. He had a really thick New England accent. He, hey, Doc! Hey, Doc! How's it going today, Doc? And, and he actually got on the local radio station. We were going on a catamaran cruise at the Great Barrier Reef, and they had rented these catamarans for us to go on. He basically got on on the the radio and said, "Hey, you know, we're looking for some people to hang out with us, specifically ladies, on this on this catamaran cruise," and a lot of them showed up and it was just another another great day the catamaran cruise I I don't have those pictures anymore I got rid of so many pictures years ago but if anybody has any pictures of the catamaran cruise I would love to see them and I mean that first week I don't know I don't know how we survived the the training in Tully I mean it was just a party every night and then of course we went up to the whole purpose we were there the the jungle training school up in Tully. And there was a lot of great training. I've got that picture of me on the obstacle course where I'm hanging from that rope. Some of y'all will remember that. I love that picture because it really shows you how the light infantry soldier dressed. If you look closely, everything, you're just economizing space. Every little thing is taped down. What we would call in those days, we were all so wire. Tight. That is something I still use to this day. When I see something that is really exceeds expectation, is done really well, I'll say, "Hey, that is so wire tight." And so I, I again, I've lost so many of these pictures. Picture, I have a picture of um, this huge hog that wandered into our, our bivouac site. Um, that In that picture, I don't have it anymore. You, it looks like someone has splashed water on the guys. We're in our solid green jungle fatigues, and it's just sweat. It was just so very, very hot. I remember poor Ron Middleton, one of the big rats, crawled on him uh, at nighttime, and that was not very fun. Australia is just home, almost like Panama in a way. It's just home to so many dangerous things but again we had been to Panama and so we were in good shape for this and while I don't remember a lot of the stuff we did in the in the jungle part of the, the jungle training part of the Australia deployment back to sergeant Doyle Kruger he does remember this
2: well my favorite memory as far as military related would be when we went to the bush with the Australian army and OF COURSE, WE'D BEEN AT IT FOR A LITTLE WHILE. WE WERE DOING PRETTY WELL. AND WE WENT TO A LIVE FIRE RANGE. AND um, WE ALWAYS SETTLED OUR BASE PLATES. YOU KNOW, WE WERE MORTAR SQUAD. AND uh, THEY'RE OVER THERE THREE, FOUR ROUNDS. AND OUR FIRST SHOT TO SETTLE OUR BASE PLATE WAS A DIRECT HIT ON TARGET. and. Um, felt pretty proud and cocky at that moment.
0: (laughs) I think we were all pretty proud and cocky. Another memory I have from the, the training portion of that was at one point we were issued Australian rations, their versions of MREs, and I mean, it was like a gourmet meal. Some of the stuff I wasn't crazy about, but they had brown sugar and tea and these little coffee, cookie biscuits that I I really liked. Uh, I had saved one of those for a long time. I certainly don't have it anymore. Another thing I saved from the mess hall back at... Townsville was a box of cereal, um, what we would call Rice Krispies. They called Rice Bubbles because Krispies was sort of a um, something that you would use to describe dandruff. It was a slang for dandruff. I also learned um, that first night, uh, that that alcohol-infused first night, an Australian walked up to me and just yelled, "I'm pissed." I thought he was mad. That's just their slang for being drunk. And so anyway, um, great, great memories, both in the field, in Townsville. But one of the things that I've got to tell you about, one of the stories occurs, again, while we're up in Tully doing the training, and we're going on a whitewater rafting training exercise on the Tully River. And um, we'd we'd done a lot of work in the Zodiac boats in in Panama. The difference was these did not have outboard motors. We were going to be rowing down the Tully River. And so, you know, we're separated. I don't know how many boats it took to get everybody in there. It's like one squad per bow. And our rucksacks had to go in the middle um, for balance and things like that. And my job was to sit with my back up against all the rucksacks and keep an eye on that. And so I'm facing back towards the back of the raft. Now, we had guides. We had guides. In fact, I checked. You can still do whitewater rafting in the Tully River. There's still an outfit that does that. So one of their employees, their civilian employees, is I I guess like the coxswain. He's in the very back. I guess he's, he's using the rudder. I don't remember. I just remember he was sitting in the back. And he looked like your prototypical Australian, big, burly, red-faced. And so if you've ever done whitewater rafting, you know for advertising purposes they show you, you know, going down the rapids and dodging rocks and things like that. But a lot of it, it's just very still water, and you're just kind of floating down the water, keeping the the raft going straight. That's what the training was all about. The teamwork again, and things things like that that we worked that we had worked on before. So we were not strangers to you know, being on the river, being in the rafts. Well, what what was new was having a civilian with us, especially this particular Australian. So at one point, when we're kind of just calmly floating down the river, he looks at me and asks me a question. He says, hey, mate, how did a Mexican get in the American army? And I'm thinking, first of all, why are you talking to me? And I said, wait, I'm not Mexican. I said, I'm from Texas. I said, "I'm, I'm American. Ah, mate, you look Mexican to me. Now, if you didn't hear episode one, I'm adopted. Yes, I am Hispanic, but my parents are Anglo. I did not grow up around Mexican culture. I did not grow up listening to Mexican music, and I don't speak Spanish, okay? And so this guy just won't let it go. Hey, mate, you look Mexican to me. How's a Mexican? And just, and the guys can tell I'm starting to get a little irritated with this guy. Like I've said in the past, one of the things, you heard Eric talk about it, you want to keep the respect of the grunts of the 11 bravos of the infantry guys i had never done anything to interrupt training to slow down training i had never been a burden when i'm attached to second platoon Alpha Company. And Wiz and Lieutenant Lombatis can tell I'm getting a little irritated with this guy because I'm starting to, to, to kind of talk back to him and I'm dropping some F-bombs and I'm you know telling him to stop talking to me. And so Lieutenant Lombatis says from the edge of the rep, hey, doc, take it easy. Don't worry about it. And then he looks back at the guy and says, hey, man, we're, we're training here. We don't need any input from you. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, mate. Didn't mean anything by it. Didn't mean anything by it. Well, we get to another smooth patch on the river, and I think, okay, this guy has finally let it go, and so we start floating down the river again, and then this knucklehead starts singing a song that I've since learned is by James Taylor, and he starts singing, Mexico, Mexico, never been there, but I still want to go. I lost it. I wildcatted him. I jumped off the floor of the raft. We go tumbling out of the back of the raft into the river. I'm flailing away at this guy. He's screaming, are you crazy, mate? What are you doing? I can remember Captain Townsend coming across, George Washington style, standing up in his raft with his hand on his hip, looking down at me. Doc, doc, what the heck are you doing? Doc, get out of the water. Doc, get back in your raft. And so, of course, we're going to take the rafts to the side to get everything, you know, resettled. I think, it was Eric Anderson. I thought he had been hurt. He was laying on the floor of the raft. I thought he had hurt his ribs and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I caused him to get hurt. He was laughing so hard. All the guys were, were laughing. You know, they, they had jumped in to try to pull me off of this guy and of course, like, okay, listen, for the rest of the trip, you two guys don't say a word to each other. And so, you know, that was a very embarrassing moment in many ways for me. But if you've ever been in the military, you know, sometimes when you do these knucklehead things, it makes you rather legendary dairy with the guys. But that is one of my ever-present memories of the trip to Australia was wildcatting that guy on the Tully River, and and the guy's like, man, Doc, I've never seen you really lose it like that. Well, anyway, after Tully, we come back to Townsville for one more week, and of course, I think it was right about the time we were about to leave, or it could have been while we were still in Tully. You may remember Eric said he was going to celebrate, Eric the Cook was going to celebrate his 21st birthday in australia and and given what first sergeant young had seen about the way uh, the rest of us had been using our free time eric had a funny story about his 21st birthday evening
1: he's going back to my birthdays my birthday actually fell on during that seven day period where we were locked down and we were not allowed to leave the the, the bay you know our, our little camp mm. and i i went to first sergeant and i said first sergeant the first sergeant young i said listen, you know, it's my 21st birthday, and you only get one, and you really – I'm in Australia, and he kind of he did one of these where he looked away, but he's talking to me. He goes, he goes, as long as you're back by 5 a.m., I don't care what you do. But he threw in the big but. You could not go out with your American buddies. See you at 5 wow. a.m. So me being the cook, I, I had to go – you know, I worked with the, in the meth hall with the Australian Army dudes. And that's who I spent my 21st birthday out on the town with none of you guys, none of the Ameri- my American buddies, all these Australian <laughs> Army dudes that I had no idea who they were. And, man, and, you know, the beer's a little bit stronger. Found out the hard way. It, it's and, it's uh, a lot stronger.
0: Well, we finish our training up in Tully. We come back down to Townsville for one final week. And I remember that very well for a couple of reasons. I would met someone, a young lady on the catamaran cruise named Deanna Smith. She was from New Guinea. And, uh, you know, we kind of saw each other a little bit in that last week. But on the day before we left, I was out of money. I couldn't even afford a taxi cab, so I was walking everywhere. I was walking back to the base, and I saw her, and she came across the street. And she said to me, she goes, oh, hi. I said, well, you know, I'm leaving tomorrow. Uh, I, I just had to say goodbye. And, and she goes, oh, well, I was at the infirmary this morning. And I want you to know that I tested positive. And of course, I'm thinking, uh-oh, big trouble here coming up in nine months. And then she says, yeah, I tested positive. Strep throat. It's like you might have wanted to lead with that. Anyway, one of my worst memories of my time in the army was the flight home from Australia with the worst case of strep throat that I've ever had. In fact, uh, the chief, uh, our, our medical uh, doctor there, um, at one point was contemplating having them land the airplane in Hawaii and taking me off the airplane. He was so worried about my my. Uh, uh, airway closing but he arranged for someone to 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 meet the airplane with some penicillin and I took penicillin I slept pretty much the whole flight I was deathly deathly ill uh, on the flight home but I got back and everything was fine. I wrote the article for the Fort Ord newspaper. I think it was called the Bayonet now that I think about it. And uh, it was two times I was in the newspaper. Once I was pitching for the HHC Hawks softball team and the other one was my byline for our trip to Australia, which I got paid absolutely nothing for, by the way. So where were you in, you know, September of 2013 or January of 2004 or 1982. You may not know, but for the rest of my days when someone says, "Where were you in November of 1987?" Easy. Her Majesty's North Queensland, Australia. I really think the, the the big idea in all of this, the Australians thought they were getting the Americans they had seen in Stripes and Save It Private Benjamin and all the lampooning of the American soldier that went on in the mainstream media and the Australians. They, they loved American culture and music and movies and things like that. I do not think they were expecting us to be as good as we were in November of 1987 because we really were hitting our stride. We were, this was our 11th month together. We'd been to Fort Hunter League twice. We'd done all kinds of training. We had a great company commander and exceptional NCOs, Sergeant Fonseca, Sergeant Kruger, all of the NCOs in Alpha Company. Then and in the past and into the future, the NCOs are the foundation of any rifle company.
1: When you see the Southern Cross
0: and as a side note, I was having so much fun in Australia, I never saw the Southern Cross. And when we were in uh, Townsville and uh, having our fun before and after Tully, I, I didn't know where the stars were half the time. So I would not have been able to find some obscure constellation, no matter how obvious it might have been in the Southern Hemisphere. I have thought about the Australia trip so many times and I've told so many of those stories over the years to so many people. It really was for me it wasn't the hardest field problem we ever went on in my in my estimation, but it was the most fun. It was the most fun I had in the Army, and in some ways it was a bit of a mixed blessing. You know, when I got out of the Army and was in college and my friends would want to go to the coast for the weekend, it just wasn't all that exciting. It's hard to top a trip to Australia. I want to thank Eric Rothschild, who is now a big-time fitness guy. I hope you are following him out on Facebook, and I want to thank my dear friend, Sergeant Doyle Kruger, uh, for helping us with this episode. I've actually got some um, audio that I'm going to from Sergeant Kruger's interview in the Veterans Day show that I do for my banking podcast every year. And then we have a great interview with Lieutenant Igle for next week's episode, the final episode of Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. We're going out to Death Valley, Fort Irwin, the National Training Center. I've saved it for last because it really was, for me, the hardest field problem that we ever went on and and of course that will be our final episode and it, it will probably be a bit of a longer episode as this one was there simply has not been enough time to talk about so many of the great people i met in the army. One person, I just, if you'll please permit me, especially those of you in Alpha Company, one of those people that I've not talked enough about was Wiz, the RTO, William Wiznut from, I think he was from uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. He was my absolute best battle buddy when we were in the field. He came to see me after he left. Fort Ord, he spent a couple nights at my apartment in San Antonio. I remember I had tickets to a Spurs game, and so I set him up with one of the nurse's aides from the hospital, and by all accounts, they had a very nice time. He and I um, smoked our share of ganja that weekend and reminisced uh, on not just our time in the Army, but in the lives that we were going to lead going forward. I would love to hear about some of y'all's favorite memories from the Australia trip, but I've got to tell you, I've just not talked enough about Wiz. He really was by, he was just always next to me. It, it, in the platoon, we were together everywhere, and uh, I was very sad to hear that he, he passed away many, many years ago. And then there was one episode left. Um, next week, I will do the toughest thing I have to do, which is to sign off and and just say goodbye to all of y'all and uh, how much I've enjoyed reminiscing this way with the podcast and on the phone with some of you. But uh, for my part, for my part, look... I love 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry. I love the 7th Infantry Division. I graduated from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Yes, ranked number 15 right now in the country, undefeated in college football. They didn't even have a football team when I went there. But my alma mater will always be Fort Ord and the 7th ID and as much as I loved the 7th Infantry Division and the 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry I really was an Alpha Company. Those were my guys in 2nd Platoon and and I loved those guys and I loved the adventures we had together but it was really hard to top Australia not just because the training was tough again, but those two weeks on either end of the training where we really just kind of cut loose and got to go enjoy Australia, a place that none of us expected to go. When we put our name on the line and raised our hand and said, this we'll defend. Well, next week, again, final episode of light fighters i'm looking forward to it and not looking forward to it all at the same time so until then whether it's in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere no slack cold steel bushmasters and night fighters boar brother boar